0: Hello and welcome to the Talking Techniques podcast. Brought to you by Biotechniques, this show brings you the latest from the frontiers of the life sciences, straight from the people exploring them. I'm your host, Biotechniques digital editor, Tristan Free. Today, I'll be exploring the realm of epigenetics and, more broadly, the approaches used to investigate the topic. For those who are maybe less familiar with epigenetics, it's the study of the molecular alterations and manipulations of DNA that control gene expression and can be passed from generation to generation. Coming up on the episode, discover the raging debate between geneticists and physicists that you didn't know was happening.
1: Uh, I, I used to say this to physicists and they would say, well, oh, what about the transparency of glass? And I was like, "That who cares? But it turns out that's really important. The transparency of glass underlies you know, fiber optic cables, which actually underlies the information technology revolution. In the same way, this underlies a biological information revolution.
0: Find out the true value of single cell methods.
1: I always have this. The analogy is if you're a boat and you're trying to go from the east coast to the west coast of the United States, you can either go through the Panama Canal or you can go around the tip of South America. The ensemble average goes uh, right through Brazil no boat travels that ensemble average and so if you average things together you can get really misleading and confusing results
0: and revel in the fact that sometimes just sometimes experiments work on the first try
1: yeah so we had this crazy idea that maybe the transposes would just immediately give us sort of a a sense of that that open chromatin landscape and it turned out that worked pretty well on the first try Uh, and you know when that happens you know then you know you're onto something nice
0: my guest today is will greenleaf associate professor of genetics and applied physics at stanford will thanks for joining me on the podcast
1: very happy to be here thanks for having me
0: so, firstly, you're the head of the Greenleaf lab at Stanford. Um, can you tell me a bit about the focus of this lab's research?
1: Yeah, so broadly speaking, we like to say we're interested in the physical genome, which doesn't really mean anything, but it's very convenient because it sort of uh, means m- maybe that we are, we're interested broadly in the, the physical processes that maintain sort of cell state and, and gene expression. But actually, in, in broad strokes, we are interested in sort of two different directions. One. We're interested in how this two meter long object which is your the human genome is folded and compacted and sequestered into a five micron or five millionth of a meter uh uh structure like the nucleus and how that sort of the way the the genome is compacted sets sort of a physical memory for the cell remembering who it is uh so that's one uh direction the lab is interested the other direction is interested in how information encoded in the genome is uh, made into sort of physical objects like macromolecules and how changes to the underlying DNA sequence affect the structure and function of those macromolecules. And we like to explore that in very high throughput sorts of ways, looking at lots and lots of mutations and asking how they change function.
0: In that work, what, what are the kind of approaches that you take to um, to investigate, so both that, that compacting and, and storing and um, sort of memorizing of the DNA? Um, yeah and, uh, and, and your, other, your other research focuses.
1: So, so one of the uh, sort of lenses that we use to try and explore how uh, the genome brings about sort of different cell states or different gene expression programs is something called chromatin accessibility. So your genome, again, it's big, it's two meters, it's folded, and they, the sort of smallest level of, of uh, organization is DNA, maybe 150 base pairs of DNA wrapped around uh, a histone protein. Uh, to form a nucleosome, and then those nucleosomes are uh, have other proteins that bind to them, and parts of the genome are actually folded and compacted and sequestered away and aren't really being used, uh, and other parts of the genome are open and bindable by, for example, factors like transcription factors that can then drive uh, gene expression. And so, what we are it, one of the ways we like to explore how regulation works is to try and identify genome wide the bits of the genome that the cell is using, that is to say, that are accessible uh, to the machinery of transcription. And we've developed tools like ATAC-seq, which goes in sort of labels all the parts of the genome that are accessible uh, so that we can then like sequence those regions and tell which parts are accessible in different cell types. Because remember, every cell in your body more or less has the same genome, but obviously skin cells are different than blood cells, they're different than fat cells. And that's most because they are reading different parts of the genome they're following different software programs right on the hardware layer of the genome uh, and so really trying to understand how that software layer that epigenome works is uh one of the things we're really interested in and and open chromatin at figuring out which parts of the genome are are being used are being read by the cell is one of the major directions that we've been uh exploring
0: so uh, in my research of, of your lab, the, the concept of the regulome came up. Can you explain that, that sort of phrase a, uh, a bit more?
1: Yeah, maybe. So I, I think the regulome sort of speaks to all of the sort of nuclear protein contexts uh, that lives on the genome that brings about, that sets uh, the biological state and brings about sort of the, the gene expression programs that define what a cell is. Um, and the ohm part is sort of, we are interested in probing that using so-called omics, which tends to mean converting sort of protein DNA interactions or RNA or other things into something that can be sequenced using high-throughput sequencers. And high-throughput sequencing is an incredible, there's been an incredible technological revolution, right, in the last 15 years. Maybe there's been a million-fold improvement in our ability to sequence DNA which I claim is unprecedented in the history of technology development for any technology ever. Uh, I, I used to say this to physicists, and they would say, well, oh, what about the transparency of glass? And I was like, "That who cares? But it turns out that's really important. The transparency of glass underlies you know, fiber optic cables, which actually underlies the information technology revolution. In the same way, this ability to sequence billions of, of bits of DNA for maybe $1,000 underlies a biological information revolution. Uh, so figuring out ways to ask questions where the questions can be converted into little bits of DNA that then can be sequenced, uh, and you can do a billion measurements at a time, that's, that's where the omic side comes in. So we are interested in regulation, uh, uh, the regulome, how genes are regulated, but looking at it genome-wide using high-throughput sequencing, so regulomics, I guess.
0: Okay, so you're, you're looking at a lot of different layers of information there. You've got the, the genetic sequence. Um, I think you also mentioned you were looking at the RNA sequences as well.
1: That's the output in some sense, right? So you want to understand why, what the cell is doing, right? What the, the molecular phenotype in, in some ways is either the proteome or the transcriptome. Uh, and the why is sort of the, the, let's say that's the regulome or the epigenome plus, uh, you know, other broadly speaking, the epigenome or the the way that the cells are regulating their their transcripts. So yeah, you, you need to sort of see all of it to try and understand causality, right?
0: Yeah, so, you, so you've got that you've got the, the RNA, which we're studying, which, as you say, is the, the transcriptome. You're also studying the, the protein molecules, so that you've got the proteomic approach. Um, and then you're also looking at the, the molecules involved in epigenetics. And I think a lot of epigenetics is kind of like methyl groups and things like that.
1: That's right. So there's a few different layers uh, that are sort of classically referred to in the epigenome. And, and what, one is, again, covalent modification of DNA, right, the formation of CPGs, Met methyl Cs uh, at CpG locations. This is the so-called fifth base uh, of of DNA, um, and and can be passed down from even t- uh, across generations, uh, but also from cell to cell in a in a very high fidelity sort of way. So fifth
0: yeah. f- fifth base in the. DNA is made up of four different types of bases that encode all the information and and the the methyl group is acting as a a fifth base to add even another layer of information to that to that that's right
1: that's the way a lot of people sort of conceptualize a t g and c and then methyl c right uh in the human genome other organisms have all sorts of other uh modifications actually but methyl c is one of the big uh uh, modifications that's very functional in, in the human genome um and but But then, so that's a covalent modification, but there's also protein contact sort of layers of uh, information within the genome. Again, I mentioned that the the DNA is wrapped around these histone particles, which are proteins, sort of like a tuna can uh, that you wrap your DNA around. Uh, And these uh, proteins can have tails that can be modified in a covalent way, but you're modifying the protein that is touching the DNA. And it's sort of like a scratch pad memory for the cell. Yeah, You can modify the protein uh, in ways that say, oh, this gene is used and make sure that you would keep it around and uh, don't, you know, methylate and turn it, turn it off. Or you can uh, have po- post-translational modifications of these uh, uh, histones that say like, okay, this is this is stuff we don't need ever. Shut it down. We're we're not going to look at this uh, sort of over again. You can also have modifications that say this is a regulatory element. Keep it accessible so that transcription factors might be able to bind to it. So that's that's sort of uh, the way that uh, cells can keep track of which bits of their DNA they should be using and which bits they really shouldn't shouldn't be using because actually using the wrong sets of genes. If you're a you know a liver cell and you turn on a blood cell program, that's really bad, right? And, and that can cause dysfunction. So.
0: What are the potential impacts then as, as you um, sort of unearth more about this, this regulome and, and how um, gene expression is, is controlled and, and regulated? What are the, the impacts of your findings um, in a more real-world clinical sort of aspect?
1: Yeah, so we're, we're interested in, this in maybe two different directions. One, one is sort of basic questions about how cells change their state and and also remember who they are. Uh, For example, in blood, basically all blood cells start as a hematopoietic stem cell and differentiate down multiple paths to become a T cell or a B cell or a monocyte. So what are the different uh, transcription factors? What are the regulatory programs that turn on sequentially over time to pull cells into final developmental states and how are those states sort of stable and can they be um, you know, uh, manipulated? And, and can we push, for example, a hematopoietic stem cell to create cells more down a, a lymphoid path or a myeloid path? And you know, what, what are the fundamental principles of how regulation and state changes happen? Uh, and then we're also interested in sort of more questions in the realm of disease, right? So for example, in leukemia, Uh, What are the dysfunctional regulatory programs that are running uh, that are very different from sort of normal blood? Uh, And then are are there sort of signals within those that might uh, develop into potential therapeutic avenues, right? Are are there surface markers? Are there uh, signaling pathways that are clearly on, but really shouldn't be uh, in any sort of normal uh, differentiation program? Uh, and are, are there ways that we might be able to, to target those uh, sorts of things? So uh, in a lot of ways, it's sort of either basic questions of what development looks like, and can we map what normal human tissues uh, are doing to, to become tissues, and then using those sort of normal maps to, to really understand the molecular basis of disease.
0: Okay, so there's a lot, uh, there's an intersection of a lot of different topics here. They're all coming together to form this dysregulome, this um, and you're, you're quite uniquely suited to to manage this sort of spread of topics can, can you tell us a bit about some of the the previous appointments you've had and the specialities that you've um you've worked on that have sort of let set you up to be uh, sort of ideal for for managing this lab and conducting this work
1: i'm not i'm not sure anyone's
0: ideal but i i'll try i can talk
1: about my hit my, my i guess my academic history is that, is that yeah the, yeah yeah
0: you've had quite a varied yeah. um sort of a very career path to studying a lot of different <laughs> um, different labs yeah,
1: Kind of true. So I started off uh, at, well, I mean, I guess way back when I was uh, in, in high school doing uh, sort of research uh, in actually gene transfer. We were, I was really interested in uh, how to get uh, genes into uh, cells uh, to do sort of gene therapy uh, applications. And that sort of got me excited about molecular biology. I've always really uh, had a passion for molecular methods and methods development. Um, but in, in college, uh, I got into physics. And so I, I did an undergraduate degree uh, in physics. And then I did a year uh, studying actually in England doing computer science for because I was interested in computer science and sort of the interface between physical biology and, and compu- computer methods, things like that. But in the, then I uh, ended up doing a, a, a graduate study uh, at Stanford in the laboratory of Steve Block doing single molecule biophysics where we were looking at RNA polymerase and how it's able to copy uh, RNA from DNA and how it's able to grab NTPs from solution and and use those to both copy uh, RNA, but also move down the DNA and ask very basic fundamental questions about how that can happen and, and measure individual steps of RNA uh, as it moves along the DNA at the levels of nanometers. And then after that, I did a postdoctoral fellowship in a chemistry and chemical biology department uh, where I actually uh, worked on methods for sequencing DNA uh, at at scale. And I really got bit by the high throughput sequencing bug. In a lot of ways, uh, uh, sequencing methods are ways to measure single molecules at immense scales, right? Millions and billions uh, of of sequences that eventually have originated from a single molecule of DNA. Um, And that was very appealing to me, maybe after doing uh, a graduate career, spending four years in a basement, measuring one molecule at a time. uh, I I like the idea of doing a billion at a time. (laughs) We may speed this up a little bit. Uh, And so uh, after uh, my postdoc, I I started the lab uh, at Stanford in 2011. And, you know, I'm in the genetics department as well. And I have a courtesy appointment in applied physics. They probably gave me that because I have my PhD from their department. So they, I guess, they they were very charitable. Uh, But but I I really do like being sort of a method development and sort of physical biologist um, in sort of a a more biological, uh, you know, in a a medical school. And Stanford, too, it's such a collaborative atmosphere. Um, It's just a fantastic place to be a, a method developer. Um, And we we are a very, very collaborative lab. We bring in lots of, uh, we have very diverse people in the lab, you know, physics people, uh, applied physics, bioengineering, genetics, uh, cancer biology, MD, PhD, all all sorts of people in the lab, because I'm a big believer that like multiple expertise, you always want someone who's an expert. So you have your question, you'll find that person.
0: Well, I suppose you you say you're not uh, maybe not ideal, but I think they we've we've seen you you had that that experience in, in working with the RNA. Then you've um, had the uh, experience as well, where you've learned all about the high throughput techniques and things like that in sequencing. Um, and sequencing. And then I think a, a lot of the um, uh, a lot of the time, the issues that people face when they're working with these different um, omic techniques to sort of do these multi-omic studies. um is that they have all of these different readouts for their information that they have to combine. Um, Did did your computational biology experience help you sort of um, with combining these data sets and um, sort of uh, extracting um, key pieces of information um, from those data sets that then align with each other?
1: Yeah, I mean, I like, I like think it did. Uh, again, so I, I think uh, in some ways, you know, I, I'm a PI and, and I try to, so I, I have sort of high level ideas about how to, how to do things. And I, I feel like also, I think physics uh, convinces you to take numbers and units very seriously um, and, and understand noise processes and statistical uh, I- issues with counting and things like that. And I think that that's been jammed into my, like you know like that's really foundational in my training and i think that that uh, has been really valuable especially when it comes to single cell methods that we've been uh, we and others have been both developing and implementing to try and ask questions about uh regulation in individual cells and now you're really talking about single molecules and you know you're at the level of where where noise is a big factor because you know, you're you're looking at the genome. There's there's two alleles in every cell, right? You, you're either going to see something or you're not. And when you don't, it doesn't mean that it really wasn't there, right? There's there, there's lots of uh, lots of noise, and you have to think about what the most relevant way to extract biological insight out of these uh, really large and complex and potentially noisy data sets. And I think that. Uh, I think that physics training and physical science training is actually, and and computer science training certainly is uh, is valuable when it comes to uh, interpreting these new and very very exciting data sets.
0: So you've mentioned there the um, the sort of single cell aspect um, of your work. Can, can you tell us a bit about the um, single cell sort of techniques and and um, sequencing techniques that you you use in your research?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, we we uh, as I mentioned we were really interested in trying to understand the uh, accessible uh, chromatin landscape of individual cells. So again these are the right elements in the genome that are that are open and accessible to the machinery of transcription and therefore have the potential to be regulatory. Uh, and so my lab in collaboration with Howard Chang and driven forward actually by uh, Jason Winrostra, who's now at Harvard developed this uh, method called ATAC-seq. Um, that is able to sort of rapidly and sort of simply assay regions of accessible chromatin. And we, we also adapted it to be able to uh, look at individual cells. So understand uh, chromatin accessibility at the individual cell level. And this has also been, uh, you know, uh, commercialized by uh, companies like, like 10X. Um, so we, we, are, we are excited to, to use sort of these single cell methods uh, to get away from the the worry of the ensemble, the, the dreaded ensemble average, right, where you take a complex tissue and you grind it up. I always have this, the analogy is, if you're a boat and you're trying to go from the east coast to the west coast of the United States, you can either go through the Panama Canal or you can go around the tip of South America. You know, some boats could go uh, the northern half, some the southern. The ensemble average goes uh, right through Brazil. Right, so no boat travels that ensemble average. And so if you average things together, you can get really misleading and confusing results. Um, and so we are excited to try and get, stay, get away from that uh, ensemble average using these single cell tools. Uh, a lot of people have been using single cell uh, uh, RNA-seq, so trying to understand the, the transcriptome, understanding which genes are being expressed at the in individual cells. And and, uh, we've been trying to marry that also uh, with uh, this understanding of the the regulation that is potentially bringing about that uh, gene expression program. So these are really uh, interesting and orthogonal methods. One is sort of the what of the cellular phenotype. And in some sense, the open chromatin is at least part of the the answer of the why, right? Um, And then of course, there's also things like Uh, protein surface markers um, that are, uh, that can be assayed using affinity reagents that are linked to DNA um, barcodes. And so you can have 20 different, uh, uh, you know, affinity reagents, each with a different barcode that likes to bind to a different uh, protein. And then you can get a a measure of the RNA and maybe uh, all the proteins uh, on the surface of a cell. and, and, uh, And then also marry that either, operationally in one assay together with an open chromatin assay, or you, you generate data separately and bioinformatically link these two uh, data sets together, which is also something that actually we've, we've really been doing a lot of and actually works surprisingly well. Um, so
0: you, you mentioned the um, ATACSEC. Uh, was that something that was developed in your lab? Because your your lab, is a focus of it is is working on building those new tools to, to explore this realm. Um, can you tell us a bit about the, um, the the development of that tool, and then also um, the type of tools you're developing at the moment?
1: So I have a joint uh, graduate student with Howard Chang, uh, who, or a, back in the day, <laughs> we had a joint graduate student uh, named Jason Wenroster, and a, and a very talented postdoc also uh, named Paul Jarisi who uh, were, uh, we, we sort of, we had this crazy idea that, you know, there was a lot of beautiful work from John, John Stam's lab, for example, and other labs looking at uh, open chromatin using uh, DNA hypersensitivity assays. Just incredible, uh, groundbreaking work uh, that made it very clear that even if you just ask the question, you know, which parts of the genome are accessible, you got incredibly rich data sets uh, about what the cell was thinking effectively uh, and how it was using its DNA to control uh, its gene expression. And so, uh, yeah, so we had this crazy idea that maybe the transposates would just immediately give us sort of a, a sense of that, uh, that open chromatin landscape. And it turned out that worked pretty well on the first try. Uh, and you know, when that happens, you know, then, then you know you're onto something nice. Um, it, and, it, and the nice thing about the uh, uh, attack seek is that uh, it's also very, very relatively simple. You 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 basically get uh, you know nuclei. You add your transposases, and you basically have a sequenceable library at that point. The assay and the library prep are the same step, right? And so uh, I used to say it's so easy that a grad student could do it, but now the joke is <laughs> it's so easy that even a PI can do it. So. Uh, Yeah. So so the world is open even to PIs that want to experiment, maybe even computational PIs can do it. So, yes.
0: Fantastic. Um, And are there any tools that you're looking at at the moment um, in terms of developing? Have you sort of spotted any gaps in your um, your knowledge that you you need a new tool to to develop to understand?
1: Yeah. So uh, we are really interested in. Trying to understand, for example, at a single regulatory element, there can be multiple transcription factors that bind, or nucleosomes there, or nucleosomes being evicted, or maybe just open DNA. In different cells, those different states may, or, may exist at different amounts, right? And so uh, open chromatin uh, assays in the bulk, and even in the single cell, does, don't really give you an accounting of exactly which uh, proteins are bound at which locations. And there's some really beautiful work uh, by a number of labs that use uh, sort of methyl transferases to sort of spray paint the genome. And basically, when, when you have DNA that's open, you, you would get methylation uh, spray paint on your DNA. Whereas if you have a, a, a nucleosome or a transcription factor bound, that would protect the DNA from this sort of molecular spray paint. And then when you sequence across these 500 base pairs, you can use. This uh, CPG, if you if you have a methyl change, this fifth base change, you can then infer whether or not that DNA was protected by the binding of a nucleosome or transcription factor, or if it was just open and and got converted by the the sort of this molecular spray paint. I think that th- that's really something that we're really excited about being able to assay across ideally very long pieces of chromatin and really account for exactly what the occupancy is at every sort of base pair, even at every binding site along a single chromatin fiber Back to sort of single molecule, right, questions. And then once we have that, it would be, I think we're excited to build sort of the ensemble of the different states that can occur in a cell and really then try and link those different states back to the ones that are productive for driving gene expression, for example. So we've developed some methods that are able to do that, to read single molecules, for example, using nanopore sequencing um, uh, uh, that use this sort of methyltransferase technique to try and map chromatin accessibility uh, across, a, a long, across a whole locus effectively at the single molecule level. So that's one of the things we're quite excited about. We're also excited about in, as, as maybe we've touched on a little bit, multi-omic assays, right, instead of just looking at RNA-Seq or just looking at a genome or just looking at open chromatin or just looking at protein, starting to combine all of these uh, modalities uh, into assays that can report back sort of multi-dimensional information or multi-omic information from individual cells. The other big thing I think that people are really excited about is coupling these single-cell methods with perturbations, so CRISPR-based methods for either Breaking genes, or breaking regulatory elements, or you know, upregulating different genes, or you know, down-regulating different genes, and then asking what happens when you do that to the whole regulome. Let's say, right? So then we're moving not just from, from you know, we're not ma- mapping things anymore. We're actually cutting the wires and figuring out what sort of breaks in the sort of differentiation trajectories. Um, and in getting a more mechanistic understanding of what, uh, of what is pulling cells into their sort of developmental fates.
0: You, you mentioned earlier um, your your work sort of looking at or um, the, the potential applications in in leukemia, um, for instance. So, with these single cell um, technologies, can they, can they give us a bit of a better insight into understanding the variations between um, cancers cells within a tumor? Um, and, yeah. and the role of, um, of epigenetics into the onset and, and progression of, of cancer?
1: So, I, yeah, I think the answer is yes, but actually it's really early days still. Um, so, for example, I, I think if you take the, one of the uh, leukemias, uh, the, this multi acute leukemia that, we, that we've published on, um, the, the classic way to, to, to sort of uh, diagnose these leukemias relies on three or four or five different uh, sort of phenotypic markers that are on the surface of a cell. Um, but, but when we do the molecular phenotyping with either open chromatin assays or with RNA-seq, we get sort of 20,000 sort of uh, dimensions across that vector. And, and we can see really quickly actually that the underlying uh, differences between individuals for this, these sorts of cancers are really immense. Um, and there, there is a class of sort of regulatory elements or gene expression uh, uh, patterns that are common across, uh, uh, across, for example, this specific subtype of leukemia, but there's also a ton of variation. And really, we just don't have the numbers or the, the follow-up to really uh, link the sort of differences in molecular regulation with either... Uh, sort of treatment outcome or the different ways that we ought to be treating uh, uh, cancer. But I think that that is coming. I think that's going to start becoming more and more important to really understand the molecular phenotypes in a deep sort of single cell kind of way so that we can understand which uh, targeted therapies might actually be be efficacious and why, quite frankly.
0: uh, so as, as those um, those tools develop and our, um, our sort of understanding increases, do, do you think it's possible that we'll be able to apply these um, techniques to, to other areas of, um, of disease research? So um, I think obviously virology is very much on on everyone's mind at the moment. But um, I think perhaps in terms of the, um, the, the sort of latency observed in um, persistent viral infections such as HIV, um, so where where the virus sort of lies largely dormant until it's sort of reactivated and and then comes up, there's there's a sort of epigenetic um, component to that. Do you think that these kind of single cell techniques are going to have an application there as well?
1: Uh, Yeah, I think we're doing some of these sorts of uh, work, actually, even on the HIV front. I think, for example, you know, dormancy in HIV, that can be, there can be it can be incredibly rare to and it's really hard to find these cells. And quite often, what you really want is some sort of a way to sort of genotype cells and then find the right genotype and then ask questions, right, about their molecular features that are like one in a million, right, or something, you know, very, very rare. So I think absolutely, they're, they're, these are, I think that the single cell tools are going to be used more and more, not just in cancer and in immunology and in sort of just mapping what tissues are doing, but more and more in you know anything you can imagine, really, because almost all biological processes/slash diseases tend to be at their heart. They're still you know the fundamental unit of biology is still you know a cell. And then I think the, the bigger question, perhaps. Is whether or not that is going to be the, the way we diagnose things in the future, or we're just going to find really good biomarkers that you know, the three or four genes or the regulatory elements or whatever that basically break the, the biology into the right 10 states or three states or whatever, so that I can say, like, oh, you, you have this disease and we should treat it this way. It's it's unclear if that's gonna need like this, the sort of the immense infrastructure of single cell assays. Uh, insofar as it's much easier to run a QPCr or something right than generate uh, you know a hundred thousand single cell data sets and analyze them in some reasonable way. So I think that that's still sort of an open question but uh, I think at, at for, for understanding the, the, uh, the molecular etiology of disease, absolutely it's a, it's a crucial tool in the tool belt.
0: So if you could if you could ask for one thing um... To help with your research into the regular? and you only get one. Um, but treat me as a genie, and I can grant you this this wish. What 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 would it be um, to to help you sort of further your understanding?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean that, that one's actually pretty easy. Uh, just the the caliber of amazing students and postdocs that I've already been very lucky enough to have. They're the they're the smart ones, honestly. I'm I'm lucky enough to be on this ride and try to you know. Uh, do what I can to steer uh the ship it, it, so that we stay away from rocks so 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 that's that's my wish It's just the the same the same caliber that I've been lucky enough to have
0: well Will it's been fantastic having you on the podcast thank you so much for coming on well that was a lot of fun thanks for having me if you've been interested by these topics you may want to check out our spotlight on next generation multiomics, sponsored by 10x live on biotechniques.com where you can also catch an interview with Will's colleague, Howard Chang, also of Stanford. And if you've enjoyed the episode and would like to find more like it, you can find Talking Techniques on Acast, Spotify and Apple Podcasts, or look for the podcast section on our website at www.biotechniques.com. Thank you for listening. Stay safe and goodbye.